Many of you may want to promote your organization, your business, a cause, or your favorite charity to our listeners. For this year, 2024, you can do that right here on this podcast. This podcast is now carried worldwide on 15 different streaming platforms. Hundreds, if not thousands, listen to each episode each month. For just $100, you can get a 60-second advertisement that will run all month. That's 30 days of advertising for just 100 bucks. For $200, you can get a 60-second advertisement that will run for two months. And for just $300, guess what? Yep, you got it. You get a 60-second advertisement that runs consecutively for three months. Friends, I'm very familiar with radio advertising costs. I know how much it costs. It's a lot. Let me say this clearly to you. You will not find a better deal. Interested? Email me. Let's talk about how we can help you advertise. You can reach me at tjordan at 1795group.com. That's T-J-O-R-D-A-N at 1795group.com. Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode 18 of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. For this episode, we're going to talk about a new research project that's almost done. You're the first to hear about these remarkable results. The study examined if historic redlining that occurred from the 1930s to the 1960s hurt people, and today is associated with obesity and food scarcity, among other variables. So you'll be the first to hear about it. However, before we do that, let's talk about Sunday evening, February 18th, 2024. Are you registered for this? I'm talking about the 1795 Group's virtual workshop on program evaluation. It starts at 6 p.m., goes to around 7.30. And trust me, just trust me, you won't want to miss this. If you're interested in your program succeeding, getting grant money for them, you really need to attend this workshop. I'm serious. We don't make any money on these. You want to be able to brag appropriately about at least one of your programs. We make zero money off these workshops, and I think if I did my math right, this will be our fifth one. Registration is only $10, and half of that, that's $5, will be sent to charity to the Greater Cleveland, Ohio Food Bank. They really need our help. That means that your registration's only $5. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You're not going to find a virtual workshop of this high quality for only $5 anywhere. I dare you. Look, try and find for $5. You won't find it. You can learn and participate from the comfort and convenience of your home. Please register today. Time is running out. 
It's February 18th. For information, for registration information, for reviews from past attendees, go to 1795group.com. Look for the events page. And I hope to see you there. My special guest for this episode is Anthony Goodwin. I've been waving to him through the window of this soundproof booth. And he's been patiently waiting and smiling at me in the studio. Anthony's always so positive. How you doing, Anthony? There he goes again. Anthony works for the National Co-op Grocery. He's their director of business innovation. And he's also the health equity coordinator of the 1795 group. Let's hear about this fascinating research project that he was involved in. Here he is, Anthony Goodwin. Well, hello. Welcome to February 2024, everyone. This is episode 18. This is Tim Jordan. I'm your host. I have a fascinating guest with me today on this episode. His name, Anthony Goodwin. He has a master's degree in business administration from the University of Toledo. He's the director of business innovation at the National Co-op Grocers. He's our health equity coordinator of the 1795 group. He's also a doctoral student, and in all honesty, I have to say I'm chairing his dissertation at the University of Toledo, but it's so fascinating, I had to have him on. So let's welcome Anthony Goodwin into the studio. How are you doing, Anthony? Doing good. Thanks for having me, Dr. Jordan. You're welcome, and thanks for waving and smiling back at me from the studio. Hello. Good to see you. I appreciate the positivity. Let's give a shout-out to your employer, the National Co-op Grocers. Um, let's talk about who you're employed by. I know I said their name twice already, but let's say it again. Who are you employed by and what do you do on a daily basis? Yeah, so I'm employed by National Co-op Grocers, or NCG. Uh, we are a business services cooperative. Uh, we have about 160 retail food co-ops that are members of NCG uh, that operate over 230 stores across 39 states. Um, uh, I may provide a little bit of a definition on uh, what a co-op is, because I know many people either know it or you don't, uh, but a co-op is essentially just a business model um, in which the people who use the products and services of the business share ownership and control. So some popular examples are credit unions. If you belong to a credit union, you're a member of a banking cooperative, uh, Ocean Spray, Florida Natural, uh, these are owned by the farmers who actually provide the product that's used and then share in the benefits of, of the sale of the product. Um, and so we could probably do a whole podcast on cooperatives, but just wanted to give a little bit of background. Um, and NCG was formed uh, in the 60s and 70s. There was a boom of retail food co-ops um, to fill the need of providing natural and organic foods. Um, and in the 90s, natural organic food became a little bit more widely available we started to see more natural and organic grocery chains start to emerge. And so food co-ops uh, kind of banded together and formed NCG in 2004 
um, to help to strengthen their purchasing power, mainly to be able to compete on price. Um, but we also offer what we call a virtual chain, um, which just provides some efficiencies um, and kind of common systems and practices instead of each food co-op having to develop uh, all of their systems themselves. And so I uh, work with communities who are looking to develop food co-ops and introduce them to NCG. Uh, and where the business innovation comes in um, is that I'm focused specifically on developing a viable model for food co-ops to succeed in low-income communities. Um, traditionally, food co-ops have been located in affluent uh, towns and, and primarily natural food stores. Um, in, the, in the last five to 10 years, we're starting to see uh, more um, uh, low-income communities and communities of color really leveraging the cooperative model to address their food needs, uh, recognizing that the big box stores, you know, uh, have no interest in doing business in those communities or continue to leave them. And so uh, that's where the innovation component comes in. And so I get the opportunity to do this work nationally and, and work all across the country, working with communities who are interested in opening food co-ops. Very good. Well, I thank you for that definition of co-op. Uh, even if people knew it, they may have forgotten it, and it's good to be reminded of those things. So let's set the scene for our listeners. Um, they know now where you work and what you do, but they don't know very much else about you. Uh, so tell us about your educational accomplishments, uh, briefly about your past work history, and most importantly, about your family. Yeah, so I guess I'll start with family. Uh, talking to you from hometown of Toledo, Ohio, born and raised um, married to my wonderful wife, Brandy. Uh, we have a blended family with four children, uh, ranging from 20 years old to seven. And so quite the, quite the span. Um, my oldest is actually closing on her first home on Friday. Uh, my two boys are seniors in high school, so they're, you know, figuring out kind of what's next for them. And my youngest is in second grade. So, uh, definitely keep us busy and, you know, kind of the full spectrum of, of different points of life. Um, work experience. I've always worked in the grocery industry, kind of in different sectors. Um, started at Meyer, uh, which is a large supermarket chain in the Midwest. It was kind of my get through college job. Uh, ended up getting into leadership um, and store development and did uh, worked for Meyer for 10 years. Uh, then had the opportunity to leverage that grocery experience in a more impactful way. And so I joined a uh, local healthcare system here in Toledo, Promedica Health System, uh, who was looking to open and operate a nonprofit grocery store in Toledo, Ohio, uh, which proud to say is still open today. Um, and so I spent six years with Promedica working on various food insecurity, uh, food security programs um, and other programs to address social determinants of health. Uh, had the opportunity to, to do some consulting uh, with some other in, uh, healthcare systems that were interested in opening a grocery store. Um, and so, yeah, I just worked across various facets of the grocery industry, chain, national chains, nonprofits, and now cooperatives. Um, and along that process, really developed a passion for um, improving access uh, in low-income communities. Um, very, very interesting. Your background is very interesting. So, Let's go now to education. I noticed the MBA 
by your name. I know that you're a doctoral student. Tell us about your educational accomplishments. Yeah, so always been loyal to University of Toledo. Recently uh, received my Bachelor of Science and Master of Business Administration uh, from UT, and I'm currently pursuing a PhD uh, with research focus on food systems um, and health equity. And uh, knock on wood, hoping uh, to graduate here in soon in May of 2024. Very good. And again, in, uh, in all transparency, I need to say that I'm chairing your dissertation here. So we're a little bit biased. We think you're great. Um, so let's talk about you. To, to finish this PhD degree program, you had to do this big research project, and we call that a dissertation. All doctoral students have to do a dissertation, PhD students. And is, is that correct, Anthony? Right. And so... I know that all good researchers go into a project. You have educated guesses or hunches. We're going to get to those in a minute. But going into this big research project, you probably had those. And and you talk about in the research project that I've learned a lot from you about historic redlining. And your hunch was, you know, maybe historic redlining hurt people, particularly poor people and those that lived in previous redlined areas. So for the sake of our listeners... Let's define redlining. What is redlining? Yeah, so redlining is a term uh, that was coined based on the discriminatory practice of the homeowner's loan corporation back in the 1930s, uh, often referred to as Hulk. Um, and Hulk was an agency that was developed by the federal government uh, following the Great Depression, really to help to stimulate the economy uh, and specifically address the, the high rates of foreclosure. Um, and so Hulk um, not only uh, offered uh, different uh, refinancing programs, uh, but they also assessed mortgage lending risk or perceived risk um, in over 200 major cities across the U.S. over the course of five years. And so um, as their assessment process, they assigned neighborhoods one of four different grades um, that they primarily based on occupation, housing, and neighborhood conditions, but we know primarily was based on racial compositions of the neighborhood. Um, and so uh, the four grades that they assigned range from A through D, A being the best, um, and these were color-coded on maps based on the grade. Um, and so A neighborhoods were assigned a green color, um, and these were mainly white upper-income neighborhoods. Uh, neighborhoods that were graded as B uh, were defined as still desirable. Uh, these were color-coded blue, and these were also predominantly white neighborhoods, but more of a working class. Um, C uh, were de uh, described as declining. Uh, these were colored yellow on a map, and these were primarily immigrant neighborhoods or those that had a threat of infiltration uh, from black residents. Um, or D, which was the worst uh, grade that they uh, defined as hazardous, and these were color-coded red on the map, and these were predominantly black neighborhoods, and so hence the term redlining. Uh, and so it was nearly impossible for uh, you know, black Americans that were living in these hazardous areas uh, to get a mortgage. Um, 
also it was just as difficult for them to get a mortgage in other, uh, you know, higher graded neighborhoods, even if they had the income and the credit to do so. And so essentially this resulted in segregated neighborhoods, uh, but also has had an impact on home ownership, wealth, and, you know, many other disparities that we see that, you know, we saw then and, and still today. Um, and so this use of race in lending decisions was made illegal in the 1960s as part of the Fair Housing Act. But again, you know, I, I know we'll get into some discussion today, um, you know, still has a legacy uh, that is still felt today. So from the 1930s to the 1960s, this was common practice. And I've seen the maps, perhaps some of you have seen the maps, uh, they're actually red. These neighborhoods, these zones are red. Uh, with Somebody took a, like a red pencil, red marker or something and outlined them and said, basically, don't let people go there, right? Yeah, it was that. And it was, you know, it, it was predominant. It was initially, um, you know, used for the federal government as a uh, kind of a indicator of where it was safe for them to uh, issue mortgages or to back federal mortgages. Um, but the private lending industry also started to use these maps. And so what happened was it was, if you lived in these areas that were labeled you know, red, um, it was nearly impossible for you to get a mortgage and buy your home in these neighborhoods, which has, again, had an impact on home ownership and wealth that we still see today. Um, but also, you know, forced you know, the, the, those that were living in these communities to remain segregated in them and not be able to get loans or move into homes in other areas. Yeah, so the 1930s and 1960s, let's take, for example, that would be my parents' generation. Uh, my dad is dead. My mom's down. Well, I'm not supposed to say, but she's 86. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Um, I, I'm supposed to whisper that, I guess. Um, that would be their generation. So they, they would not be allowed to own their home, which was a sign of wealth for them. It's a sign of wealth. Um, that's how they turned into a bigger home in Rossford, Ohio. On Glenwood Road, that was a bigger home for us and my sister. And then they went even to a bigger home in retirement. But they wouldn't have been able to do that, and I wouldn't have been able to do that. So you also looked at obesity and food deserts in these areas. So let's be sure to define each so we know what we're talking about. What's the technical definition of obesity? Yeah, so obesity um, is defined as the abnormal or excessive accumulation of body fat that ultimately impairs health. Uh, it's typically measured using body mass index or BMI. And so a BMI of 25 to 30 is considered overweight. Um, and any BMI over 30 is considered obese. And a food desert, what would the definition of food desert so be? Food deserts are uh, low-income areas without access to healthy and affordable food. And I think it's within a uh, half mile. Um, most food justice advocates today um, uh, have discontinued the use of food desert. Most use the low-income, low-access, or LILA, uh, or food apartheid, which really highlights the racial and discriminatory factors at play, uh, rather than just focusing on access alone. So food deserts has fallen out of popularity, Correct. you're saying? Yeah, most people use LILA okay. or food apartheid, food sovereignty. That's good to know. 
So let me ask you, Anthony, why, you know, why should I care? Why should others care if, like, for me, here in Sylvania Township in Toledo, where you're at, um, there's a Meyer about a mile from here, a Kroger full grocery store about a mile and a half or less from here, right around the corner on Bancroft. Um, why should I care for someone else lives in an area where they don't have full grocery stores? Maybe they have to travel eight miles and take two or three buses to get there. Why should I care? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's often said a society is only as healthy as their sickest citizens. And so, you know, I think there's, we always should, should be focused on how do we care for those that um, are the most vulnerable um, for those that live in those communities. It really creates an unfair burden on, on those residents to access healthy food. Uh, you mentioned having to take multiple buses or pay for somebody to take you to the store. And so this really uh, causes a burden um, or if they don't have access to do that. Um, uh, really re- leaves them to rely on unhealthy food as their primary source of diet. So, um, you know, dollar stores, convenience stores, fast food. Um, and when, when someone uses those sources as their primary and typical source of their diet, um, that has a negative impact on health. And so, you know, what we see is that often results in preventable uh, diet-related chronic conditions. We talked about obesity, but also cardiovascular hypertension. Um, and so, you know, it, it really has a long-term effect on health and even uh, life expectancy, um, you know, just based on not having access to e- equitable access to healthy food. So I'm, I'm being a little facetious. I'm playing devil's advocate. Obviously I care because I'm in public health, but if someone has to take a couple buses and maybe travel seven or eight miles to the nearest full grocery store, what if they have small kids? What do they do with their kids? Well, we wrote a, a newsletter about that last last time. If you didn't get it, it's about Maria's story, and she didn't know what to do with her young children. So she asked her mom if her mom would watch her young children while she went to the grocery store, or she took the kids so if you see a mom with young kids, maybe a mom of color, be gracious, be kind, because you don't know what they're going for. You don't know how many miles they traveled to get there, how many buses they had to transfer, how many kids that they have had to drop off at moms, that kind of thing. If you're just tuning in, my special guest today on Grassroots Health is Anthony Goodwin. Anthony's a health equity coordinator for the 1795 group. He's also a doctoral student at the University of Toledo, and he's done some very, very intriguing research for his doctoral dissertation. We've been talking about it. His daytime job is working for the National Co-op Grocers and the business, he's the business innovation director for them. So let's move on to your study now. It's really interesting to me what you found. Let's go back to your research study. What were your hunches, Anthony, your educated guesses that we in the world of research, we call these hypotheses. Yeah, so my hypothesis was that, uh, you know, I would see continue to see stark racial differences between best and hazardous areas, um, as well as uh, other demographic variables that I looked at around income and poverty rate, that there would continue to be or there would be stark differences between areas that were previously graded as best versus hazardous. 
Um, I also uh, hypothesized that there would be food access differences, so there would be less food access and hazardous census tracts, um, and relatably higher rates of obesity in those hazardous census tracts. And you collected data from, I think, cities in Ohio, only in Ohio. What cities were there? There were 13 cities in Ohio that were previously redlined. Uh, Akron, Canton, Cleveland, Columbus, uh, Dayton, Hamilton, Lima, Lorraine, Fort Smith, Springfield, Toledo, uh, Warren, and Youngstown. And so my study looked at all 13 of those cities and compared uh, the best, the, the census tracts that were previously graded as best versus hazardous in those 13 cities. So you looked at census tract data that was previously highlighted as green versus the red-lined or red-outlined census tracts. And what did you find? Yeah, so I found uh, pretty statistically significant differences between the the best and the hazardous census tracts. Um, As assumed, uh, hazardous census tracts continue to be majority-minority populations. And so uh, we've seen in best census tracts that the average uh, share of minorities that live in best census tracts today is about 4% compared to 33% um, in hazardous, uh, previously hazardous census tracts. So continue to be majority minority. Um, When looking at specifically the difference between white and black composition, um, the average in best census tracts, those that identify as white represent about 70% uh, that live in best census tracts, while in black or in hazardous census tracts, um, about the largest share is black, about 56%. Also found some some differences in median income. Uh, The average median income in best census tracts is about 91,000 today, compared to 36,000 in hazardous rate, uh, hazardous census tracts. Say that, I I can't believe that. Say that again, 91,000 median income in best, and then 30-some thousand in in the worst. So almost a 3x difference in median income. Yeah, unfortunate. And, you know, uh, relatably poverty rate, the average poverty rate in best census tracts is about 13 percent compared to 40 percent poverty rate in hazardous. Um, And so, uh, yeah, when we looked at income as well as racial composition, I mean, just significant differences um, that, you know, aren't just due to chance, I, I would say. Yeah, so I want to know what you found out about obesity. Was Obesity is a major problem in the United States, as you know. You health types out there really know. Um, you can turn to the CDC and look at obesity maps and how it's increased over the last 20, 30 years. I tell my students in public health, I said, have you gone to a swim park lately? Look at the kids' bodies. I mean, they, they wear like spandex T-shirts, the boys wear long sleeve t-shirts because they're embarrassed of what they have. Some boys have breasts and they're just adipose obese tissue. So what'd you find on obesity? Yeah, so I also found obesity rate to be higher in hazardous census tracts. 
um, and so the average obesity rate uh, for hazardous tracks was about 46% compared to 34% in best census tracks, so about a 12-point difference or you know, 12 out of every 100 people. So you know, as we assumed, uh, those that live in previously redlined census tracks um, have higher rates of obesity than, than the better graded tracks. So um, you've heard of the elevator speech, I'm sure, and let's make sure that all of you know what I'm talking about. So it means if you're on an elevator, let's say at a professional conference, let's say American Public Health Association, someone stops, steps on the elevator and says, uh, what, what are you here for? So what? What do the results mean? So you have 30 seconds. Give me your elevator speech, Anthony. I would say, so what? Um, you know, this shows that redlining has left a legacy effect on present-day neighborhood segregation, but also food access and health outcomes. Um, and so the practices of the homeowner's loan corporation not only describe neighborhoods, but I would say you, know, you could argue they prescribe the conditions that remain almost a century later. Um, and so I like to say if policy can make it, policy can break it. And so I hope that, you know, these studies uh, bring awareness to the modern day disparities and inequities that we see and really highlight the need for policies to repair and reverse the legacy of discriminatory policy, uh, such as redlining. Yeah, we're going to talk about what we can do in the future in a minute let me recap for our listeners. So you went into this large research project with a primary hunch, educated guess, if you will, that people who lived in previously redlined areas or dangerous areas of Ohio, these 13 cities, experienced greater rates of obesity, right? right. Greater amount of food deserts or lack of access to fresh foods. And you found these That's things correct. to be true. Is that correct? So what do your results add to the existing published research? Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is uh, still an emerging, emerging area of research. Uh, the, the whole maps were just, lit uh, just recently uh, converted to digital and, and provided the opportunity to do these kinds of studies. Um, and so this study really contributes to a recent and increasing number of studies that are assessing the association of redlining with uh, various present-day environmental conditions and health outcomes. There have been other studies that have looked at, uh, you know, air air quality, water quality, various other health outcomes, and so this study adds to that research. Um, to my knowledge, it's the first uh, comprehensive study of all the previously redlined cities in Ohio. Um, and so this not only provides a deeper dive into the disparities that exist in Ohio, uh, but also I think can be a model for similar studies to, to look at uh, statewide um, or also to you know, eventually add and look at additional health outcomes in the future. Well, congratulations. That's an outstanding research study. The findings are shocking. I mean, I, I didn't know that that was going to be related. And so, so what's next? Are you going to try and publish the, these results or present them at a national scientific conference or get these results out in people's hands in mass media, social media, TV news, radio, newspaper? What, yeah, what's so next I'm for you? still, uh, as you uh, 
mentioned, you're chairing my dissertation. And so I'm in the final process of finishing up my writing um, and defending my dissertation and look forward to graduating in 93 days. Not that I'm counting, but... (laughs) Uh, right, 93 days, days. Um, and then yeah I'll probably out. take a little rest this summer this has been a five-year journey so I'll probably celebrate and uh, get a little rest and then yes definitely plan to publish my findings uh, present at conferences such as APHA uh, this fall um, and then look forward to my role with 1795 Group as Health Equity Coordinator and uh, hopefully being able to continue to, to advance this area of research and uh, help other communities that are looking to do the same. Yeah, I think this, this research may put you on the map. You may be traveling around presenting this as an expert. You may find yourself <laughs> living out of airports and living out of uh, suitcases. As I do now, right. As you do now. <laughs> So, yeah. So this podcast is called Grassroots Health for a reason. It was named that because of my strongly held beliefs that things that come up, initiatives that come up from the ground level from people, instead of being driven top-down by the so-called experts, what comes up from the ground level has the best chance to survive over time. That's my my own belief, my own experience. So let me ask you this, Anthony, what can we do as ordinary people to be part of the solution to these issues? Well, let's see, uh, Volk comes to mind, uh, you know, a lot of attention on up the upcoming federal election, but it's equally, if not more important, I would say to, you know, vote in your local elections. And as I mentioned, a firm believer that if policy can make it, it can break it. And so I think uh, the more that people can be involved in local politics and look for opportunities to address uh, some of the inequities that they're seeing in their community uh, is powerful. I'd also uh, highlight, again, the opportunity to promote cooperatives as a solution. Um, uh, we uh, co-ops in their history have always been uh, have always filled a need, so to speak. And so I think um, as we're seeing today, communities that are leveraging co-ops as a solution to address their food access um, uh, disparities, uh, I would continue to to advocate for the for people to look for community level grassroots solutions such as cooperatives to address their needs. Yeah, so the first thing you said is get out and vote. Uh, The upcoming presidential election is going to be between two people that are very different, probably. Um, One is very different towards race than the other. Uh, Vote your conscience. Do what you think is right. But but put people in the president's position and lower in your local community in positions that will listen, will do something about this, because this is a major problem. Um, and then second, you talked about co-ops. Co-ops are grocery stores that who own? Uh, the consumers, the people that use the store um, are the ones that own it. They serve on the board of the directors. They have uh, democratic control. And so co-ops are businesses that are um, owned and controlled by those that use the business or use the services. There you go. I like the idea very much. So I always give my guests the last word on this podcast. 
And the same is true for you, Anthony. Any last words of wisdom that you'd like to leave our listeners? Um, I would just say kind of going back to, to the why care again, you know, we can only be as, as good as, as our, uh, sickest citizens or those that are most in need. And so whether this is a issue that affects you day to day or not, always, I I would, uh, suggest, you know, look for ways where you can be an ally and help those that are suffering from the inequities that we talked about at, you know, no fault of their own. And a lot of times you hear the, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And I think, you know, studies like this continue to show that there are other foundational kind of systemic issues that are out of the control of, of people. And so, you know, always looking for opportunities that you can lend yourself and help to address, you know, those that are the most vulnerable. Yeah, some people just can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. There are forces against them that prevent that, and this is one of them. Well, thank you for coming on. Don't forget, next month, March 4th, I think is the date, Monday, March 4th, the first Monday of the month, we'll be back with another new episode of Grassroots Health. And always remember what the 14th Dalai Lama said. He said, be kind whenever it's possible. And it's always possible. We'll see you next month. Take care. I know a master clinical teacher when I hear one. Dr. Roger Seahelt of MedCram is a master clinical teacher. He's quadruple board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary medicine, critical care, and sleep medicine. He's also an associate professor of medicine and co-founder of MedCram with Kyle Aldred, a physician assistant. How would I describe MedCram? Hmm. Well, I guess I'd describe it this way. It's a perfect place to learn. Their YouTube channel includes more than 100 free medical videos, and they've also created helpful courses in a variety of topics at a very reasonable price. Subscribe and start learning today like I do. Become a better student, better healthcare provider, score better on exams, cut down on study time, or obtain continuing education credits. You can find them at medcram.com.